You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast by Nori, the world's first carbon removal marketplace. Here are your hosts, Ross Kenyon and Christoph Jospin. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast. I'm Christoph Jospin here with my colleagues, Ross Kenyon and Paul Gamble. We're still in Washington, D.C., you know, I didn't think I would hear myself say these words. It's a great town, and I want to come back. We had a good time last <laughs> I'm glad you got my name right. The security guard in the building thought my name was Roth Kenny. <laughs> so, <laughs> I didn't have the heart to correct is, it, This though. is the Reversing Climate Change podcast with Christoph Giuseppe and Roth Kenny. <laughs> yep. That's good. Great, great name mess-ups. Um, well, we're really excited to be here today. We're in the Niskanen Center. We're here with Joseph Mikett, the Director of Climate Policy. We're really excited about what uh, Niskanen works on, the attitude that they try to take. They tend to be, well, I don't want to put words in the mouth of uh, the good folks who work here, but maybe, Joseph, you could tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got here, and what makes this place special. Yeah, happy to do it. Thank you guys, first off, for having me. It's a real pleasure to meet you all. And I'm um, interested to hear more about what you're working on and talk about these issues. I do it all the time, every day. And so it's always a delight to actually sit down and, and have a conversation. So really appreciate the the opportunity to do so. I I work at the Niskana Center. I lead our, our climate work. We are a federally focused think tank and advocacy organization. And we work across a variety of issues with a sort of uh, libertarian or practical libertarian view. We work on uh, poverty and welfare, immigration, foreign affairs in the national defense, and climate is our biggest, is probably our biggest issue. And what sort of makes us unique or distinguishing compared to a, a lot of other groups is we take a very activist stance on climate change. We think that the science tells us that there's a real set of risks that we need to deal with, that carbon emissions, and particularly at the volumes that we're emitting now, are really going to harm people in the near and the far future, and that that is something that the government has a role to play in addressing. And so we work primarily, like my kid actually phrases it best, right? He says, dad talks to the government. <laughs> uh, and we work, do you in fact do that? I do. Yeah, we uh, we talk with policymakers and and other sort of people who inform how policymakers or what you would call governing elites is the political science term of art um, think about the issues of climate change, energy policy, and how we should deal with this uh, you know ever increasing emergent issue. That is our sort of uh, operational model because we come from, or most of our senior leadership come from the libertarian world. I don't know how familiar your your listeners are with all that, but um, they were executives at the Cato Institute. A lot of our staff comes out of other libertarian organizations. Our sort of unique ability in this world is to really see and understand the arguments against uh, meaningful climate action and the beliefs that are held by conservatives and Republicans particularly, and to sort of address their concerns and their worries about um, climate change from a, a empathetic and, and meaningful perspective rather than trying to bludgeon them to death with the latest IPCC report. The 12 years to die. We're yeah. all going to... Yeah. Yeah. You're not a fan of that approach. You think that somehow turns people's brains off. Oh, man. We should... Before we get into it, I want to hear more of this background... Yeah, you very graciously didn't correct us. It said Dr. Micah to you. You're, oh, you're actually yeah. a scientist, you right? claim it. You got to force us <laughs> yeah. to do it. I'll, I'll own, <laughs> own your expertise, Joseph. Yeah, I, I do. So I, I, I have a unique take on this issue. I have 
interestingly came from a research science position um, before I moved to Washington. I was a chemical oceanographer. I worked on trying to update our estimates of how much uh, anthropogenic CO2 is absorbed by the ocean. So, you know, over the run of uh, industrial history, we've emitted so much carbon dioxide that has elevated the amount that's in the atmosphere. A lot of that has been taken up by the ocean, right? It like CO2 is a soluble gas in seawater. And that is really important because ocean capture and, and additionally capture by plants and soils on land has actually taken a lot of what we've added out of the atmosphere. It doesn't work fast enough that we can just continue to pour tons and tons and tons, you know, what, 40 gigatons of CO2. But good guy ocean, right? Yeah. But it, it actually has prevented a significant amount of warming. And um, when we think about trying to get a, a handle on how big this issue is going forward or any question of like, how much do you need to cut emissions to stabilize atmospheric CO2 or to, as you guys work on, like reverse climate change, we need to understand what's called the carbon budget and and the response of the ocean to increasing CO2 and how how ocean uptake can vary because of the effects of climate change, because of the varying chemistry that you introduce when you pour a lot of CO2 into the atmosphere are all really interesting academic and intellectual questions. So I, I worked on that for... I've been working on climate change for about a decade, and for most of the time, I was a practicing research scientist. That's one of the pieces of confusion over climate change, too, is the ocean's role has some degree of lag in the system, and it also works the opposite direction, too. When we're pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, the ocean can off-gas and pour it back in. This is a complex relationship with the ocean that sometimes people seize on to say that the correlation between carbon concentrations in the atmosphere or the ocean are not uh, directly linked to rising temperatures or something like that. The ocean is just very complex, is it not? Yeah, it is. I mean, it, you know, it's complex at the issue that uh, from the perspective of somebody who used to study it, right? So the great danger is I used to kind of dive into ocean measurements and computer models. And so you can the danger is you oversell the complexity a little bit. I think it makes me sound so smart. What you uh, yeah. gonna <laughs> right. rip the tennis ball out of my mouth? I only a little. <laughs> um, I think you know what's important to know when you think about this issue is like because very few people want to think about climate change as a scientific issue, right? If it wasn't a massive political and economic issue, then it would be consigned to like the same number of people who study esoteric matters of quantum physics, right? Like it just wouldn't be that interesting to a lot of folks for better or for worse. So when you're thinking about this in the sort of sense, like what, do, how do we use science to help us think about climate better? The ocean just, it holds an enormous amount of CO2. Way more CO2 is dissolved in the ocean than exists in the atmosphere or on land. And so when you have these large climate changes of the past, which, you know, it could be driven by numerous things, change in the brightness of the sun, changes in the orbit of the planet. The oceans inevitably respond because they're part of the climate system or part of the earth system is probably a better way to, to, to phrase it. And then they can release or change the, the CO2 balance that they maintain with the atmosphere and land. And that can work to amplify or to dampen the changes that are initially happening. So, the the worry on a part of many people is that the ocean can can work to amplify some of the changes that are introduced, either when you dump a lot of CO2 in the atmosphere or when you warm it for some other reason, like a change in the orbital parameters. And that appears to have happened in the past, right? So, the, the ocean played a role in sort of like 
you know, small orbital wobbles caused the end of an ice age. Um, the ocean warmed up a little bit, farted out some more CO2, which served to prolong and, and get away with words. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> which can serve to like prolong or, or amplify these inter, these warming periods. So that like, that's one example. And then in, in the case of human caused climate change, or, you know, you think about like CO2 management or whatever, we've dumped a bunch of CO2 into the atmosphere. So a lot of it gets captured by the ocean that has prevented some warming, but warming occurs and, because you that has effect downstream effects on wind wind fields and the chemistry at the surface ocean, um, the possibility is, or or there are some hypotheses for why or how, excuse me, the ability of the ocean to continue to take up with the same efficacy or efficiency might change, and that can kind of change the amount of CO two you can emit. Uh, before you hit certain climate thresholds or certain, you know, accumulations of carbon in the uh, atmosphere. And then too, as you, as you mentioned, if you are entering a world where you're going to start actually actively managing atmospheric CO2 or drawing it down because you have supersaturated the uh, surface ocean, the possibility is that some of it actually starts coming out because the system is trying to be in equilibrium all the time. Yeah, there's there's a lot there. Um, yeah. You know, we're talking about carbon budgets, drawing CO2 back out. I mean, we really like the simple arithmetic that says if you've emitted a ton of CO2, you need to draw another ton back down. Mm -hmm. And for the emitters, it makes the calculation quite straightforward. And ultimately, you know, we're in DC, so people need to talk about a price on carbon. How that price gets determined, I think, is a little bit unclear, but some of the things that you've written about are the social cost of carbon. Could you start with defining what the social cost of carbon is, kind of why that matters, and what some of the variations around the ranges of what that might even look like? And I'm going to stop just peppering you with questions. We'll start there. <laughs> <laughs> so, I uh, sure. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, the social cost of carbon is uh, used in several ways. I think about it sort of in, in, in two. You know, the first is it's a, an attempt to quantify using economic and, and scientific analysis the financial damages associated with a unit of marginal carbon dioxide emissions, right? Marginal meaning we're already emitting so much. So sort of what is the expected cost of emitting one more ton? And since that's a relatively symmetric number, you can also think about it as being the benefit of emitting one less ton. The other way to think about it, and that's the way that like you would you would read about in the newspaper. That's what that's what gets used in regulatory impact analyses. If the EPA is going to you know is currently rewriting all of the rules around how greenhouse gas emissions are, are regulated from cars or from power plants. And they use the social cost of carbon to estimate the benefits associated with reducing greenhouse gas emissions. The other way to think about it that is also, I think, pretty interesting is the social cost of carbon is what we're willing to pay to reduce greenhouse gas emissions or to you know, change the atmospheric content of CO2. Um, those are not necessarily the same thing, right? I think uh, it's pretty clear that uh, the social cost of carbon, at least as it is come, you know, the, there are a lot of estimates out there for what it is. I'm happy to dive deeper into the range of possible values, but like 
$50 per ton is a like academically and intellectually defensible value of the social cost of carbon as defined as the damages associated with a unit of emissions. Like loss of ecosystem services or- Yeah, or generally risk. it's like loss of economic productivity, the effects of sea level rise. Ecosystem services are very hard to price. Sure, they definitely are. Um, that gets into the social bit, right? I've never seen a non-arbitrary looking <clears throat> number for ecosystem services estimations. Yeah, they exist. So, you know, like there's actually some super fascinating research about that that we can talk about if you want. You know, that you the traditional work is like but like let me take a step back and say like how you value these damages is actually pretty difficult, right? So for some things like agricultural productivity, that's not necessarily something that's difficult. Yeah, it's pretty simple. There's already prices yeah. in play. Yeah. But like what is the value of a polar bear? Or what is the economic what is the value of a coral reef? Right. You can you can sort of estimate what it's worth in terms of tourism dollars, or you can estimate what people are willing to pay to preserve coral reefs. But it's not clear that, you know, like it is inherently a subjective question as to how much a coral reef is worth. Yeah. Or the existence of coral reefs generally, right? Which may, <laughs> you know, one coral reef may not be that big a deal. I don't lose sleep over one coral reef. But the existence of coral reefs generally, which is are imperiled by the effects of climate change, actually does seem pretty valuable to me. But those uh, are subjective. Absolutely. And I was going to add one of the additional challenges. We know that climate change is exacerbating storms, forest fires, some of these great feedback loops, which cause economic damages. Of course, those things have always happened. And so then it becomes a question, to what extent can you attribute these extreme weather events occurring because of climate change, which sort of fits into the subjectivity of the damages of greenhouse gases. Yeah, I've seen people fight right? back and forth on this one too. And I don't really have a strong perspective because I think it's above my science pay grade. But uh, yeah, where do, where do you fall on that? Are they uh, as connected as people think? Is it looser than some might want to attribute? I think it's very hard to make general statements as to whether or not the weather is getting worse. Very safe, conservative answer. That's, yeah. the, that's what I would probably take to. I mean, <laughs> I, I, you know, I think hard about that, this kind of stuff. I think they're, you know, given when we're recording hurricanes are probably the thing I've thought about most recently. Are hurricanes getting worse because of climate change is actually a really interesting question. Worse is a subjective measure. Science can, you know, technical analysis can tell you all sorts of things about what is happening to wind speeds or what is happening to the total amount of energy being dissipated by uh, tropical cyclones every year. Depending on how you ask the question, you get you can get a different answer. And I think that that ends, ends up being the case with a lot of these sort of like, you know, expressions of climate change, whether that be, you know, their effect on forest fires or rainstorms or, or what have you. How you ask the question really matters. I think it's it's safe to say that we are, from a technical perspective, much more sophisticated, much more able to say uh, for individual events, we know like the role that global climate change is, is having, right? So you can say, you know, this storm was, scientists are frequently now saying and being able to estimate relatively quickly, this storm was made, uh, you know, X percent worse by climate change, rainier or more severe, or the storm surge is accompanied by a hurricane as is higher because of sea level rise. We are, you know, because you're inherently talking about things that are like extreme, it takes longer for those effects to manifest in long-term climatological records, which is why you can ask the question two ways and get different answers. <laughs> That's quite interesting. 
Uh, I want to ask about just the the center as a whole and its relation to climate change. Uh, Paul and I in particular have been influenced by classical liberal and libertarian thinking in addition to many other things. Um, That might be the first time we've outed ourselves in that way on this podcast. Yeah. Well, I I don't know. Uh, I I don't know that I strongly uh, self-apply a label in that way because I've read a huge amount of social science from all perspectives. I've taken good things from conservative thought and reading like Robert Nisbet or you read David Hume. I've read a lot of left-wing literature and I've read a lot of libertarian stuff and uh, communitarian. I like to keep things interesting in that way. But whenever the classical liberal slash libertarian ideas come to the forefront, especially in environmental or or green uh, areas, there's a, a tendency to be immediately distrustful that we're trying to turn everything into a market, that libertarians don't believe in climate change. I know this is at least partially why uh, the Niskanen Center originated, right? There was a lot of conflict with um, how uh, Cato was approaching it. How exactly did that all fit? And where where, where should libertarians fit into the climate movement? <laughs> I'd just like to say two two things for the record. You know, Nori is decidedly apolitical, one. Two, when Ross was talking about sort of combative natures, he put his hands into fists and was doing like small fist yeah, I'm, motions. I'm, I'm guilty. For, for our listeners. T-Rex arms. Right. <laughs> um, super interesting question. So Niskanen's origin story really centers around my our president. His name is Jerry Taylor. He worked at the Cato Institute, which is the most prominent libertarian think tank in the United States and definitely in the world. And he led their work on energy and environmental policy for two decades. Thus far, most libertarians and, you know, like libertarians in the US have a lot of sympathy with the conservative movement um, around, you know, what their opinion of the role of government is, tax rates. So, you know, there's lots of reasons why they work it's together. Called fusionism, right? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, libertarian think tanks generally have kind of adopted a conservative view of climate. And, you know, so there's 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 the empirical what is, and then there is the what should be. And Niskanen is trying to change what is to what should be. And and in our opinion, uh, market liberals, classical liberals, should actually be much more concerned about climate change than they are. And I'm happy to to dive deeper onto that question, but it it generally centers around the idea that climate change. If you believe climate, you know, kind of climate science. I think that's a big, important precursor. It tells you that there are significant risks associated with greenhouse gas emissions and that those risks are going to manifest as damages to people's ability to hold property and to live uh, the lives that they want to live soon, mostly, maybe a little bit now, and, and, and for a long time in the future, right? And so you can think there are easy examples, right? If you buy coastal property, it's going to be infringed upon by sea level rise to some extent. And, and, you know, we all like, there is a, is like, there's a geophysical traceability to that sea level rise to greenhouse gas emissions. And so, you know, one of the thing, one of the kind of the fundamental roles of government that libertarians view as legitimate is protecting the rights to life, liberty, and property when the courts or other, other agents are not able to do that. And climate's a good example, right? We don't know exactly whom is going to be harmed by the effects of the greenhouse gas emissions we emit today, 
Um, they don't exist yet. They're non-identifiable in a lot of cases. And because there's significant scientific uncertainty around what the effects of climate change are going to be, uh, we don't know exactly how they're going to be harmed. This creates a perfect incentive for the government to take some role rather than courts or, or other mechanisms of you know, answering the coordination problem or, or, or repairing those damages. So, you know, that's how we feel today. Niskanen got involved in this issue because for, for lots of reasons, historical fusionism, path dependency. Um, solution aversion. Solution aversion. That's a great one. Libertarians and conservatives have tended to not take this problem seriously. And that has, you know, that has also manifested itself in, you know, rejection of the science or trying to undercut scientific messages, things like denialism. What's a, it's a slam dunk. I, I read um, Naomi Klein's just this changes everything, capitalism versus the climate uh, not too long ago. And she, have you, have you read that by the way? Oh yeah, of course. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I thought it was so fascinating because she says that uh, right of center people don't oppose climate change um, because they're wrong about the science. Uh, it's because they're paying attention to what it would mean for the transformation of, of quite a lot of policy and trying to use it opportunistically. So if the left wing of, of the climate movement is trying to use uh, climate change to advance other goals, you can see that the right is going to recoil horribly against it. Uh, yeah. I mean, that that that's understandable, right? From in this, I, I mentioned empathy earlier, right? And like I, that's actually an important part of, of our work at NISCAN, right? If you're generally wary of central planning, as many libertarians or, or classical liberals are. I, I would say the vast majority of Americans are too. Like it's not... It's not just libertarians that are worried yeah. about that sort of thing. That, that's that, a very that's American, a point. American ethos. That is a fair point. You know, like you're sort of looking at a massive central planning problem, right? Like we're worried about one number and that is the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, right? We can all go to the Mauna Loa website and I don't know the value today, but we know it's about 410, probably like 410 PPM, something, mm -hmm. like that. something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I would even say, you know, I heard Paul Hawken the other week say, let's use the number 498 when you look right. at all the greenhouse gas equivalents and it's much higher than yeah, yeah. Oh, just I haven't heard that yet wow. so like and then and then you know like lots of organizations who work on this issue is like we need to bring it down to 350 and it does it's true that you know fossil fuel use and greenhouse gas emissions are like a fundamental part of just normal everyday activities that people do that are good driving to work flying to washington dc eating hamburgers whatever it is and so there are profound transitions that are going to occur for you to to like treat this problem. And I, you know, so that gives you a solution aversion, right? Because it's possible that the the amount of government uh, intervention might be quite large. And it also, you know, for for people who like central planning or people who don't like capitalism or people who don't like the way that our system is organized today or has been for the last few hundred years, it creates an opportunity, right? So, like one way, one way that I, I think about it, and I don't know if this is entirely historically accurate. Um, you can imagine a bunch of anti-capitalist or people who view like you know planetary boundary type thinking, right? Malthusian type thinking, seeing this issue and and kind of creating you know going on a fusionist project of their own, right? We actually do need to get rid of capitalism. It doesn't mean the problem statement is wrong. It's just the solution set isn't necessarily what's right for the United States or isn't necessarily, in my opinion, what's going to help solve the problem anyway. So one of the things we work on and one of the things that is an emphasis of our work is saying, you know, 
what has been presented as solutions to this issue, in some cases it would be okay, in some cases it would be deeply problematic, but it it doesn't, you know, your feelings about the radiative impact of atmospheric CO2 or how much the planet is going to warm if we double CO2 in the atmosphere are not issues of dogma, right? That's like, that's a scientific issue. There are scientific answers to that question. And moreover, the science doesn't tell us what to do about it. That's a, that's a question of our values. And we are trying to move thinking on the Republican and conservative side because we work in Washington, D.C., and that's, that's our mission. That's where you find the kind of the most degenerate thinking probably, though that's not always true. A more wretched hive of scum and villainy. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. thing. yeah that's it. Uh, because we, we think we like kind of need to, to split the streams of thinking a little bit on that moral or on the political versus um, scientific opinions. And I think it's really interesting. I mean, it kind of comes down to framing, right? Because how you frame the problem, people can, you know, on the right, if you say the solution to climate change is big government. Well, the markets have failed us. Dead on the water, right? Dead upon arrival. And it's kind of interesting even to think about the confirmation bias and the sort of, I learned this term yesterday, the factual deniers. So a conservative farmer in Iowa, they might you know, remember cold winters and they say, no, climate's not changing. And so they're sort of picking and choosing. But at the end of the day, I think one of the things, and I'm really glad that there's a bit of outing is libertarianism because it, although we're not political, it transcends, it says climate change is not a right or left issue. It affects everyone, it affects all of us. And so I guess my question to you is a framing question. Like what is the, and obviously it's different audiences that you need to frame it differently. But in your view, how how do we properly frame the climate change challenge? So I, I you know, properly is is a tough question to answer because it like can mean a lot of things. Sure. It might be audience dependent too. It, yeah. Right. I'll I'll tell you how I think about it. You know, and that's informed by having thought about climate for a long time. Uh I have a, a scientific background. I have I like to phrase it, I have the heart of an engineer. So what, where I think about it as it's like, you know, greenhouse gas emissions are a byproduct of lots of stuff that people, of good stuff, right? Economic activity, driving around, all these things that I love to participate in as much as anybody flying around. So, you know, and then they create risks. It's like byproducts that create risks are not a form. It's not like some crazy new idea. It's just these are particularly hard to deal with because- the pervasity of the issue and the time lag associated with it. So we don't really know 50 years from now or 100 years from now exactly how bad climate change will be. We think it, you know, it's likely to be worse rather than better because you're, you know, suffering these transitions. Um, climate's changing, sea level is rising, going up. You know, weather, weather patterns and, and other things are changing. And it's, you know, we've built our society. Uh, and organized it around the climate as it exists when we built it. And, you know, ecosystems are organized around the climate in which they had developed too, right? And the the trouble is you're going to move the system faster than the response is going to be able to naturally keep up. That's where you incur costs. That's where um, people are forced to adapt. And, you know, we don't know how big that is. We don't know how big that problem is, but we know that we can reduce the severity of the problem by reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Atop that, there is some possibility, there's some finite probability that climate change turns out to not be this like nuisance that I just described, but like a really bad problem. And you can think about that in terms of geophysical effects, like 
large large scale changes to the monsoon circulation or the closing down of the ocean conveyor, conveyor belt or its dramatic slowing things that would be you know kind of bring us to what i would call like a fundamentally different climate state not not one that's necessarily just warmer but like is reorganized in some profound way for a large section of the human population or a large section of the earth's surface that's really bad that that's potentially really bad and if we can lower the the risk or the probability of that those like really severe things happening that's also good so i think about reducing greenhouse gas emissions as a you know it's a risk management issue it's like we're not going to heal every problem that society faces we're not going to prevent like weather events from harming people in the future entirely but what we're trying to do is avoid really bad things happening and this is stuff and that that approach to the issue is one we take on on a, lots of different issues this this gets to one of my big frustrations with the way that society has been approaching climate change for now and this goes back to the naomi klein thing that like climate change is such a large and complex problem on its own like let's just focus on solving that one thing let's let's not wrap up all of the problems that ail the world into this giant uh agglomerate thing because that's that's impossible and and, and this it has is, a, a millenarian vibe too like like coming to save the the world it's the it's like the one chance that we'll get the last chance it almost feels like that yeah and and like from a, a so i used to be a, a project manager uh, building software and from a strictly project management approach like you gotta focus on what is the next task that you can accomplish and produce some sort of value out of that and then and then you finish that and then you move on to the next thing but if you start trying to uh work on like six different things at once and you're getting you're getting so you're only getting like 40 to 80 percent of the way done on each of them but you're not finishing anything and if we could just focus on putting aside like the tribalism that exists around climate change and 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 just focus on like you say it's a risk management issue and we can solve it in very straightforward ways then we would solve it a lot faster and for a lot less money than it's going to take if we were to do it otherwise can we solve it in the simple straightforward way what do what do we do joseph um give, so, give us the answer one sentence <laughs> well we should have a carbon tax um yeah. is like is i that's what niskanen traffics in i think that's what is probably going to be most effective it's the most important thing we could do i try to avoid the the phrase solving climate change you know we are we're managing risk that like one way or another the fact that greenhouse gases capture heat is gonna it's gonna cost us and so what we're trying to do is minimize the costs associated with that physical immutable fact. And there you know, I think the best way to to reduce uh, those costs is to start early, put a put a price on carbon dioxide emissions so that you know, everybody doing all these pervasive activities that result in greenhouse gas emissions gets some sense that their activities are um, contributing to greenhouse gas emissions. Implicitly, they don't have to think about it every time, but you know, you integrate over all these transactions and you reduce greenhouse gas emissions using price structures. And one of the things, I mean, that's like a very libertarian idea, right? Like prices are a super efficient way to communicate information to people who are making decisions. So I'm a, I'm a hundred percent in agreement with you on that, that, that pricing is important. This is like the Hayekian argument. We had an episode of our podcast, I think it was episode 31, where one of our co-founders, Alden Donnelly, is an economist, and she's been working in the carbon market space for well over 25 years and um, it had worked in other emissions problems prior to that. 
And the whole point of that episode was talking about the attempts that have been made at carbon taxes so far have all completely failed. And they've basically just become a super regressive tax on poor people and transferring wealth from them to the large emitters. And the way that that works is because, and we're dealing with this, um, by the time this airs, we'll have already had the election in November. Um, so I don't know right now what the result is for the carbon fee in Washington state um, where, where we're headquartered. But the the argument is that by, by putting a price on it, that people will start to internalize this cost is no longer an externality. But if the, uh, the emitters who are facing the tax then just pass on the cost to their end consumers, which is of course what's going to happen because that's how all taxes work. The, the fear is that, um, the people who are capable of actually dealing with reducing the amount of emissions that come out of their supply chain are not the ones that are bearing the cost, uh, for that. So you're abstracting it. Does, does mm-hmm. that, do you follow? So if, if I pull up to the gas station, I fill up my gas tank and uh, the gas is a little bit more expensive. I think the estimates in Washington state were, uh, if this passes initially, it could go maybe as high as like 14 cents much higher, which is like well within normal volatility of gas prices, right? So we're not even going to notice that. So does that have any effect? on the emitters uh, or the, the source of the emissions, so the the oil and gas industry, does that have any effect on them actually reducing the net emissions that are happening? Um, yeah, two-part answer. And if you permit me a brief self-plug. Yeah, only uh, two parts for all of that. <laughs> <laughs> I just uh, I just uh, published an op-ed in, in October of, of 2018, a couple weeks ago, uh, or a week ago, in The Hill talking about why ExxonMobil wants a carbon tax, right? Because, you know, very, very famous oil company, huge, successful capitalist enterprise, which has brought great wealth and a lot of benefit to us, but also produces a product which we know its intended use causes harms right? Um, or will cause harms. They've been a supporter of carbon taxation for, I don't know, 10 years or so in a public sense, and they just started donating money to a political campaign, an advocacy campaign supporting carbon taxes at the federal level. Now, and I'm, I'm, I promise I'm going to get to this this criticism. One of the one of the reasons why uh, a carbon tax works, and why economists love it, is it finds relatively inexpensive or uh, trade offs. Right. So I emit more than I probably need to, or or even necessarily want to. I just don't know it. And so when uh you know you put a tax on the fossil fuel supply chain at some point. And then as a gas consumer, I eventually see that at the pump. And it's important that it's a secular change. It's not volatility, right? So in, you know, you'll see that and there is empirical evidence that people respond to secular changes in gas prices by using less. Maybe I drive less. Maybe I, next time I buy a car, I buy a slightly more efficient one. And part of the economic argument for carbon taxes is actually that you increase prices on people. Because then they, they, they use the resource more efficiently. But how much does the cost of that resource have to change in order to actually change behavior? Um, I mean, it, it's all a continuum. So like gas prices are a tough example because people tend to be relatively inflexible in how much. Yeah. yeah they're going to drive, drive almost no matter what. Yeah. Right. right. They have to get to work. To work they, yeah. So and this gets to the second part of the argument for why I think carbon taxes are an important Approach, part of our approach to climate change, because what what we really need are the Exxon Mobiles or other or other company, you know, other businesses to eventually supplant that business model. Right. Yeah. Right. 
And, but to do that, you know, if you're an engineer working at a fossil fuel company and you've got a ton of bright ideas about how we're going to reduce the carbon intensity of the fuels we provide, either by like growing algae and, and synthesizing fuels from that or capturing CO2 from the atmosphere and putting that into fuels and sort of a recycling process, I'm sure there are lots of bright ideas out there. But if it's not part of the profit motive for ExxonMobil to compete with other companies to provide lower carbon fuels and therefore have lower prices that and hopefully more customers, you're never going to turn the efforts of all those engineers toward the problem that we want to solve, right? That, so that's the second part of the carbon pricing uh, formula that I think is also but, really important in the long term. But how... So- how does that incentive get to them though? Because if they're just passing their costs on to the consumers and the consumers are largely inflexible on that, then it doesn't really exist. And what I would put forward instead is, well, they, they're really, and this is Alden's argument. So I'm, I'm going to strongly attribute this to her or give her credit for it. There are only two ways to reduce the concentrations of greenhouse gases, right? It's one is you can draw them out, which is what Nori's doing and taking that like market-based approach to do that. Mm-hmm. And the other is that you can prevent uh, existing terrestrial stores of carbon from leaving the earth and going up into the air. Sure. And there are a bunch of historical precedents for how we've done similar, how we solve similar types of problems, uh, how we got the lead out of gasoline going back to the 1970s through the 1990s, how we got chlorofluorocarbons out so that we stopped uh, creating the hole in the ozone. And the way that regulators went about it was instead of uh, putting a tax on these things, they just went to the sources of those and said, you have so many years to reduce the amount of this pollutant in your supply chain by X percent and then left it to them to figure out their own, you know, market-based approach to uh, remove that from, from the system. And that worked really, really, really well for, for those examples. Mm -hmm. And in fact, Alden told the story about how North America, US and Canada took the approach with getting lead out by doing that. Whereas Europe tried to implement uh, some sort of taxation based thing. And after eight years or so, the US and Canada had basically gotten the job done and Europe had made very little progress. And so you had this like somewhat uh, controlled experiment in comparison. So what do you, what do you think of that in terms of uh, like taking the most efficient approach possible to reducing the amount of greenhouse gases that are in the atmosphere? I reckon, you know, that it's, it's actually a very deep critique, right? Um, but I think about that in two ways. The, the first is the pervasity of greenhouse gas emissions in the economy is different from those other examples you've cited, right? So they like, if you want to substitute gasoline or let out of gasoline, there's a limited number of companies you need to talk to about mm-hmm. doing that. That's true. Um, the, the functional replacement for the consumer is relatively small, right? You may, you know, like, I remember my grandfather complaining about unleaded gasoline and its performance characteristics, <laughs> but like by and large, people's lives didn't change that much. Um, CFCs are an even better example of that, right? Like, I don't really care what kind of refrigerant right. I have in my refrigerator. Yeah. I just want it to keep the ice cream cold. Mm-hmm. So, like, I think, you know, it's not clear that these are, like, necessarily great analogies for for the greenhouse gas problem. 
The other thing is that I don't think of greenhouse gases as uh, like a criteria pollutant is probably the way I would phrase it, right? Like we don't actually know what the safe amount of greenhouse gas emissions are. It's it's kind of a degenerate question even. That's a fair fair response, yeah. We so like, Or like uh, the safe amount in the atmosphere. Oh, I think we can get closer to, to knowing what that is. But but I do agree with you that we like we don't know what the uh, safe amount of flux is. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's not clear to me that like it's it's a problem where we are able to say, well, we know what we want the flux to be, so we're going to cap it there, and then we're just going to make everybody figure out how to make that happen. Now that's not a, that's an approach that's been tried, right? Like what you describe are kind of fundamentally cap and trade systems or other. Sort of like, here's where we're going to set the limit Not, and you guys well, go figure out how to do it. performance standards, but, but right? The, but yes. Yeah. yeah. And, or and, performance. And like, those but, are super common. And those have been pretty effective. Uh, but the problem with cap and trade, though, is that because they're issuing all these surplus free allowances, it doesn't actually have the uh, effect that we want to see. Right. Well, that's, I think that actually gets to the more fundamental problem that like reducing greenhouse gas emissions is kind of hard. Yeah, for sure it is. <laughs> so if you uh, listen this far, but, you didn't get much out of but, it. Then. <laughs> yeah, it's the, hard. the second part is like that that stuff, like, you know, renewable portfolio standards, which are standards for how much low carbon energy you have in your energy system are super common and they've been very effective at reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So it's not like these models aren't, aren't being used. Mm -hmm. The problem is they generally result in higher carbon prices over smaller segments of the economy. And what we're pursuing at the Niskanen Center are carbon prices over a large section of the economy because we don't have time to go piecemeal. Do you think then that the another part of that trade-off, because that makes sense to me, um, and I always, always, so thank you, I always appreciate it when people lay out these things in terms of their policies are always about trade-offs. Oh, yeah. And there are people that are going to be helped and there are people that are going to be harmed no matter what, always. Do you think then that the trade-off around the amount of time that this takes to deal with is is part of that calculus? Like, I think part of what motivates me to advocate for the regulatory approach that I was just saying is that I think that that would be the fastest way to do it. And mm. I'm like really eager to uh, just get this heading down in the direction of like lower CO2 concentrations as quickly as possible. Um, yeah, I do think it's part of the trade-off. Uh, I, I think you and I probably have similar personal feelings in how quickly we'd like this to move along yeah. in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And certainly, like if you look at the California example, which recently um, they, that state committed to like a fully clean economy mm -hmm. by date certain. Yeah. Always a question of like how they define that and whether or not in 20 years or whatever the time window they set, they'll accomplish it. But I, I am not so doctrinaire as to not acknowledge that like in a lot of contexts that appears to work better. Mm -hmm. I still think if we want to approach this problem over the whole range of sources of greenhouse gas emissions, the best way to do it to start, and I'm not saying this is going to be the only policy because I think that's yeah. fantastical, but the best place to start is to get a price on carbon relatively soon and work from there. Where then do you put the tax? Like who, what, like who at, pays? At, yeah. At what point is the tax applied? Uh, you know, chain? It's super technical issue, but generally I would like it to be as high in the production chain as it can be. Like uh, far from the end consumer. Yeah. And there are two reasons for that. One, it just like sort of minimizes the number of compliance entities. So you yeah. get fewer people skirting their tax burden or cheating or trying to get out of it in some way. Mm -hmm. 
also generally if you're assessing it at like refineries or coal mines or natural gas processing stations those are all already tax paying entities mm-hmm. and as you know the price effects are going to filter down to end consumers so you get the you get the price effects not just at the uh, firm level which i think is really important because then they you do incentivize interfirm competition to reduce how much of this they have to pass on to their consumers uh we don't you know, so, so is it like it, to put it more simply is it it's a more like democratized approach this way because the the burden of the cost is born a little bit more distributed than if you were to do it like straight at the end consumer like if you were to add just a bigger gas tax for example yeah like the compliance costs aren't borne by the oil and gas producers they're just borne by the retail yeah, and 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 like that's also an indirect tax, right? Yeah. So a, a volumetric gas tax on assessed on a per gallon basis is not the same as a carbon tax, right? There, and like if the carbon tax is working properly, I just I just meant more for yeah. like how it gets applied, right? Yeah. Well, I I just like you know I want it to be really simple to assess, yeah, and I don't want people cheating, right? No, 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 that that totally <laughs> okay, makes I'm, sense. I'm, I'm turning your that. microphone off. <laughs> Too wonky. Cutting you off. No, <laughs> no, it's super interesting. Go Bill O'Reilly on you. Um, uh, those are super interesting questions. We we probably actually don't talk about stuff like that yeah. enough. Uh-huh. And the you know the the point that we started this on that eventually this gets passed on and like poor people are going to be paying a lot more for gasoline and they're not necessarily in a position uh, like I am to change their life to to avoid that tax. That's something we should take really seriously. Yeah, I think it's a matter of policy design. To, to kind of figure out. I know that the Washington state ballot initiative has taken like a certain chunk of the revenue to try and offset costs on poor people. I think that's debate, you know, how they do that is super debatable and Very. <laughs> and there's like really nasty and like mean politics about that in Washington. Yeah. But these are all like, I, you know, my intention of the Niskanen Center is to move our national conversation more toward where should we price carbon? Mm-hmm. How much should we price carbon? And what should we do to make sure that people aren't adversely affected as we make a climate transition from, hey, I've got a snowball, therefore everything you guys are worried about is complete bunk, <laughs> which is where we're at today. We um we should start wrapping it up, but I wanted to, man, we got into too many interesting rabbit holes, but for your specific carbon tax that you're advocating, is this global or federal? Is it revenue neutral? Is there a citizen's dividend? G- give us like a quick, uh, what do you think is the most effective way to do this? Uh, effective versus politically possible are different questions. Yeah, why don't you give us one of each? Um, I think, you know, at Niskanen, we are committed to economic growth. And so we want to find, you know, when you assign a carbon tax, because we have a lot of carbon pollution in the United States, you're going to raise a lot of money. And what you do with that money um, can be helpful in offsetting the negative impacts of the tax on poor people. You can use it to cut other taxes. I generally would like it to be used for productive ends. I don't have strong opinions about what how exactly it gets used. That's different from a lot of other groups who are my colleagues in this fight who want to see, you know, 100% of it go back to households in a sort of bootstrapped universal basic income type structure or want to see it used to cut the corporate tax rate. I think what if we succeed, what we'll eventually see is it'll be some mixture of what folks want. Some of it will go back to households to offset the costs. Some of it will be uh, used to help make the economy more productive. And some of it, I think, will be invariably be used for uh, investments in in reducing the cost of green energy or in climate adaptation. And it'd be at the federal level? 
Yeah. Okay. Great. Well, there's we probably could have done another one of these. <laughs> there's a lot. I've never seen Paul so animated. You you have a good time with that? You stealing my job over there? Uh, I like having conversations on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Paul oftentimes is uh, a little more reserved. So take that as a high compliment of how engaged she was. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, man. I, I, I can talk for another 20 minutes if you want to. I'm interested to hear what you guys are talking about. Should we should we do it on the podcast or maybe we should because uh, how, how long have we gone? We're we're at well, the recording time says 52 minutes by That's, by the time this gets edited down to the listener, it'll be less than that. Yeah, I think we should maybe take it off the air and, and just because we, yeah, we've pitched yeah. Nori on the air before. The, the listeners know what we're doing. Yeah. You, you, uh, if, if you want to learn more, go to Nori.com. If you want to invest in uh, Nori uh, and participate in this market place for the future, go to republic.co slash Nori. Yeah. And uh, share the podcast. Give it a nice review in your app of choice. Share our content. Thanks for listening. And we will see you next week. And thank you, Joseph. Yeah, thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you. Oh, as a side note, <laughs> thank you to our guest. Uh, www.niskannoncenter.org. And I'm at Joseph Mikett, M-A-J-K-U-T on Twitter. Awesome. Thanks.